Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you looking for a community of like-minded folks to connect with on your path of healing, growth, and transformation? Starting December 1st, I'll be facilitating a bi-weekly online group to offer support for anyone on their medicine path. Whether you are a new or experienced psychedelic explorer, a yoga or meditation practitioner, or simply curious about how these practices can support embodied awakening and personal transformation, I invite you to join us every other Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a practice, inquiry, and integration circle. Every gathering will include some kind of somatic breathwork or meditation practice, group sharing, and compassionate inquiry held in a safe, respectful, and confidential container intended to support each individual's process of insight, integration, and alignment. This circle will be open to all new and current Medicine Path Patreon subscribers at the $10 level. To sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash medicinepath and click become a patron. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with psychotherapist Sean Dinkle. I had Sean on the podcast a couple of episodes back to talk about male anger issues, and I received so many positive comments that I wanted to have him on again and continue our conversation. We start out by responding to a listener request for tools to help deal with anger, which led us into a deep and real exploration of grief and loss. As in our first conversation, I really appreciate the depth of professional experience that Sean brings to the table, as well as his willingness to be open and vulnerable about his own process. Since our last talk, Sean has launched his own podcast, which he was kind enough to invite me on to recently to talk about my book, Yoga and Plant Medicine. 
he asked some really great questions about how to prepare for and integrate psychedelic experiences and the role that yoga and psychotherapy can play in that process. It was the first time I've had the opportunity to talk about my book on the air, and I thought it came out really well. Sean's podcast is called New Directions for Life, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts or by going to his website, ndforlife.com, which I've provided a link to in the show notes. You can stay connected to what I'm doing by going to my website, brianjames.ca, or by following me on Instagram at brianjames.medicinepath. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with therapist Sean Dinkle on The Medicine Path. I always wonder how to start these things. <laughs> I'm glad to see you go through this process because uh, I'm new to it and I do the same thing. <laughs> so I'm like, will this ever go away? <laughs> yeah, it's always a question like how to start. But uh, I know. how about I start like this? So I'm here with uh, Sean Dinkle again. And uh, Sean, I got some really great feedback about our last podcast uh, that we mostly focused on uh, male anger and rage, but we also got into the therapeutic process and we talked uh, some about your background and, and how you work with people. Mm-hmm. And I've been hearing from uh, both friends and clients that that was a really impactful conversation for them. Yeah. And some of the feedback that I got was that people really enjoyed that we were exploring this together. Yeah with like a lot of openness and curiosity, not necessarily offering any uh, straight answers, but more uh, the exploration. I think people really enjoyed that. And I met with a client yesterday and he said he'd listened to the podcast a few times. So he was getting a lot from wow. that conversation. And at the end of our session, I asked him if there's anything that he'd like to hear us talk about on the next podcast yeah, cool. was today. And he asked, uh, you know, he was really interested in anger, in his own anger and understanding it more and also how to work with it. So he was looking for tools on how to work with his anger when it comes up. And I thought that might be a great thing to explore today. Uh, you've got a lot of experience as a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you had any tools or exercises that you offer your clients when they have anger issues. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, first off, one of the things I was thinking about when I was hearing you describe that people found our last conversation beneficial. And I'm wondering if a lot of that has to do with the fact that maybe what we're doing in a lot of ways is just modeling authenticity and maybe modeling vulnerability in this idea that here's some thoughts that we have and maybe we don't know, but that these are important conversations. I think a lot of people are having internally. And so maybe that spoke to uh, and resonated with where a lot of people are at today. And if that's the case, that's wonderful. And I look forward to continuing, you know, continuing to be able to do that. And so first off, thanks for having me back. And it's so nice to hear that people found value in it. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, so I appreciate that. And then in terms of working with anger, I had a couple of things that, that came up. I think one thing is we should be aware of our audience at all times. Um, I think one of the things that has happened uh, in me starting this podcast journey and some of the, some of the other shows that I've been on, I've talked about anger as being a secondary emotion, which I believe that it is in a lot of ways. And I think that at times I might have not, not mentioned that it is still beneficial to feel anger and it's still beneficial to experience that. And a lot of times that is the gateway or the doorway to the emotions that may be residing underneath that anger. So hmm. I, yeah, that's a good point. I yeah. want to pause there. Go ahead. I would agree that uh, our goal is to not immediately push past the anger. Uh, it is important to understand the anger and to experience it and feel it in our mm -hmm. body. Yeah. And to know that there's more underneath it. And so that's, uh, that's something I've realized when I've even listened to some of the conversations I've had back for myself, it's that I don't think I've done a good job of, it, of describing that you may still need to explore anger more fully um, before you can get to the primary emotion that might be residing along with it, such as hurt, sadness, loneliness, rejection, fear, those types of things. Um, if you've never gotten to that counterbalancing emotion or that, that opposite, opposite emotion that I'm talking about or that primary emotion, then um, your work is, you haven't, you're not going to resolve the anger that's coming up. So I want to be clear on that. I don't think that you can just work in the realm of anger, but you may have to work in the realm of anger, if that makes sense. So if you've never gotten to any of the grief that may be underneath the anger, for example, then that work is not complete around that particular issue. So it's okay to go to the anger. Just know that there's more. So that's the first thing I think I would say is just know that there's more. Um, but back to what I had said about being aware of the environment. So if you're a man, man for example, um, most men are going to, uh, you know, have a, have a physical ability um, to overpower, you know, a, a woman in most cases. And so, I know for a lot of uh, example, like I have a client right now who had a lot of his anger coming up with the previous female therapist and she was scared to death of this guy and he scares me a bit. And so we want to be able to identify uh, the comfort level with the people that we're with, if that's going to come up and we want to be, so if we're in an environment where we're around, uh, children, for example, that's not necessarily going to be a good place to explore your anger because you're going to terrify and traumatize those folks. And if your anger slips into a realm of out of control, a lot of, you know, emotional damage, but also physical damage can occur that may not necessarily be reversible. So you want to be aware of your environment and your surroundings when you're exploring this stuff. So ideally in a therapeutic environment um, or maybe by yourself. A lot of times people, and now I'm going to get into a little bit of the technique because I'm wondering if you're asking about that question as well. So how do we, the big thing is about feeling the power, not necessarily uh, externalizing the power. So a couple of things that I've done, even in my own therapy work, when I was learning how to go towards my anger a little bit more was not shutting the energetic field down, but also not putting holes under the walls in the room. And I remember the last counselor that I worked with talking about this. He said, you know, we're not looking to do drywall work in here. 
<laughs> That's not going to necessarily be helpful to any of us. Um, but we want to give you some options to feel the power behind your anger and feel its intensity without hurting yourself, myself, and the room. We don't need to do that. So a lot of times you'll hear people therapeutically talking about getting the bat and taking it to the pillow or those kinds of things. I don't even know that that really allows us to experience the full breadth of our anger anyway. There's this, it's not quite a full discharge. It's not quite a full uh, activated nervous system state in that way. One of the things that I was doing in one of my therapeutic, uh, uh, my, one of the, my own um, therapy sessions was I started feeling it build. And I don't think I've talked with you about this. I might've mentioned this on another podcast, but I started cracking my knuckles together. And I started feeling this power rise into me and he's telling me to move forward to it. And I was getting so mad and like, and, and I was, and it was starting to get loud and I could feel it. And if I kept doing that motion and as that anger come up, I was likely going to hurt myself physically. I was going to likely break something or I, I, and so what he had told me, he said, rather than shut it down, he said, why don't you just push, take those knuckles, push them together. Mm. coming together at the center of your chest just hold them together feel that anger and push inward as you're doing this and so i'm modeling this for you and the listeners can't see this but i've had my knuckles around my chest and i'm pushing in and as i'm doing that i'm feeling that energy building in, in the chest region and my sternum region and i felt like i could still hurt myself if i did that but he said just keep pushing 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 with all your power all your might and at the end of it, I had this, like, it felt like I got hit by lightning right at the end where this was, was building in this culmination. And then this feeling of like shock and release. And it was a full nervous system activation state, which is what all mammals have the capacity to feel and go into. If like, let's say that you're a gazelle and you're being chased by a lion, that's the same energetic state that I was experiencing. Um, but I'm doing it now in a way that I'm not going to be destructive to my therapist. I mean, he has a low chance of getting hurt by that process. The room is not getting hurt. The furniture is not necessarily getting hurt, but I'm feeling more of the energetic field than I would have, if I would have hit the wall, mm. there wasn't, it's like, there's this like open ended. I mean, and I'm trying to think of another good way to describe this, but you could also do that by pushing the palms together in the center of your chest. You want to feel it come up. You want to allow yourself to experience how much power is behind this. That's a very um, important thing to have. How, you know, what, what do I, what am I working with as a, as a, as a human species? Mm -hmm. What kind of energetic capacities do I have? Right. Another way that I've described it for another client who was having some real tense feelings in his legs. I said, okay, push your legs into the ground, push your feet, take your heels, push, don't shut that energy down, go towards the energy, push it all the way through the floor. Cause you're not going to hurt the floor. You're not going to hurt the earth. You're likely not going to hurt yourself. Cause typically what happens is the nervous system builds to a point where it's not likely going to allow you to um, cause uh, physical damage to yourself. And I can't guarantee this as a full disclosure. I've left certain somatic sessions where this kind of work that I'm describing for you has happened. And I've been sore the next day, like if I had a really strong workout. But with guidance, I've never, never hurt anything where I needed to go to physical therapy or rehab or anything like that. I had a session one time where I had some tenseness, you know, soreness in my shoulder and my, in my, my back region. And it went away in a few days. Um, but I felt like I got that full discharge without shutting it down so that the nervous system could discharge on its own. Um, and I felt that it took over, it let that go. And then there's a period of calm that can typically come after that. Or what can happen is then you launch into the more 
um, primary emotions that might be feeding that anger, which could be, for example, grief and loss. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I think a, a couple things is give yourself some space, understand your surroundings. If you need to yell or scream, I forgot to mention that. Oftentimes, that's something that comes up. There's this final kind of primal discharge, like a scream or a yell. It's not a continual... Uh, it's not a very long process. It's just a, it's a climax, if you will. That's the, that's the way it feels. That's the way it describes. I mean, it almost has this orgasmic quality to it. There's this huge build and a release and it feels wonderful if you can, if you can get to that stage. And it's always nice if you have somebody who's not scared of that experience and it can help guide you. They can help see the resonance and where that's living in your body and help you move towards that. And if your work and if you're, maybe starting to do something that could be destructive as I was describing for you earlier where I was cracking my knuckles together. If I kept doing that, I was going to, I would, I was going to break something. I mean, mm -hmm. the energy was going to be too big and I was likely going to break a finger, break a knuckle. And uh, that's not necessarily, you, you don't want that. You can still feel that energy without having to go to the point of self-destruction. So yeah. to recap, you want to be uh, aware of your surroundings. You don't want to try to do this work when you're with somebody who can be scared by it. Chil children, uh, a woman who's much smaller in stature, you know, to you, you want to, we want to be, you know, mindful and respectful of that. Um, we want to work with somebody who's not scared of it if we can, or if we're going to do this work on our own. Um, and some people are going to do that, try to do things where you're letting that energy build, but in a way where you're less likely to hurt your body. So driving the feet to the floor, maybe laying down, uh, squeezing fists, you're not likely going to break something, but it's just the squeezing of the fish. I think sometimes when we're moving too much, we're shutting that, that, that um, nervous system process down. Mm -hmm. So you want to just feel it and move to where the body shakes and trembles, keep going towards it, keep going, keep feeling into it. And then usually there's a big kind of release at the end of it. And either there's another doorway that then opens, or it might just be, you just just start, just discharged a, uh, a, a hot nervous system state that was previously locked into the body. So mm -hmm. it's not always that we're going to plummet to the bottom. Um, but sometimes it opens a door or it's just, uh, that's the physical release that we needed. Yeah. This reminds me of something that comes up a lot in any somatic approach to resolving trauma. Mm -hmm. The idea that at the moment of the traumatic experience, if we were unable to enact the fight or flight response, that's exactly it. Yep. That that energy gets locked in our body yeah. and it's there until it's allowed to come to a resolution or discharge. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about even how we learned how to work with this kind of energy in Hakomi, uh, which is a somatic approach to psychotherapy, where as the therapist, you might offer resistance to the client and there might be a pillow in between you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it might even take uh, the therapist plus a helper, allowing that person to push against you. Yep. And there's something really empowering about feeling your strength and your ability to push yes. back or to fight yeah. that was shut down at the time of the original traumatic experience. Absolutely. Well, and then in what's, what's funny, but I think it'll make sense as I describe it is that I have noticed that I am much less on guard. I'm much less edgy and I feel a sense of safety that I didn't experience before doing that level of anger work. So 
a lot of people are afraid that you're going to get angrier by expressing your anger. And if you're not feeling the physicality behind it, as we're describing, I think that could, if you're just thinking about things or if you're ruminating about things that are, have made you angry, you're still not feeling the power and the energy in your body. That's what's missing. And so when I realized how big that was, I feel much safer in the world than I previously did because I feel like if I had to access that point, I know how big it is and I know what it could do for me. Yeah. Right. And so there's a counterbalance. Now I don't, walk around on edge because I feel more confidence in my ability to take care of myself if I was attacked, if that makes sense, right? I'm like, oh, I know you now. I'm friends with anger now. I don't see it as an enemy. I see it as an ally. And now yeah. it's not popping up all over the damn place, um, trying to integrate its way back into my life. Um, and so, yeah, I think that... Uh, uh, again, for me, it's, it's been paradoxical in that a lot of people think that, well, you know, then I'm going to just get angrier and angrier. If you don't mm -hmm. get to the end of it, then possibly. But if you're able to feel it somatically, I found that I'm much more calm and relaxed and I have a sense of safety that I didn't feel. And it goes back to the point you just made, because when those things are shut down in us as children, for example, when we were overpowered and there was no way that even as big as our anger could have been then, it would have been enough we lose contact with that survival and defense mechanism that's very appropriate in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and so I feel much safer in the world having done that level of work. Yeah, and uh, we, we can lose the confidence that we can fight back or take care that's of ourselves. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, so to, to feel our strength and power uh, helps to alleviate a lot of the fear that we can carry around mm -hmm. if we've got some unresolved trauma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I find, you know, um, I was drawn really early on in my life to practicing martial arts. Mm -hmm. And I, I think unconsciously, I wanted to be able to feel my own power. That's and it. Yeah. I never had the inclination to become a fighter. It wasn't really in my makeup to actually compete or fight with other people. But I love the training part of it. And there's something about being able to learn some technique and to act it out on a heavy bag. Absolutely. That, yeah, allowed me to get in touch with my own strength and power as a person, as a man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's something about that that uh, helps me walk with a little more confidence in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would agree. And Basil Vanderkolk, one of the big names in the trauma somatic world as well, along with Levine, um, talks about that being a very important thing and a very important thing that he's seen in a lot of clients who have recovered from uh, a trauma, especially in terms of a physical or a sexual assault, even in adulthood, is getting their body moving, moving, which is helps to release the trauma that gets stored in the body. But in a way where we could almost get a two for one if we're doing something like a physical practice, like a martial art. Um, and he says that that's a very important um, component that we should consider um, for clients who have been traumatized and been assaulted and, and things of that nature. So um, yeah, maybe even yeah. to go further and say that it's essential. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I don't I, think he would use those words because a fear of, of, of being absolute, but I could agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my experience, uh, it's been absolutely essential to have uh, body-based practices and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So that's, that's one way to work with anger. Now that's not always going to be appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, say if someone's in like with my client yesterday, for example, he often 
experiences anger in his work. So at his office, mm-hmm. when, uh, when something happens and he's triggered, he's, uh, you know, experiencing this activation, feeling the anger come up. So, you know, maybe one option is to close his office door and do some of this like somatic work or something, but <laughs> until there's a big scream and then somebody comes running in. <laughs> exactly. So like in those moments where, uh, we've just got to like deal with our anger, maybe in a more internal way, uh, any suggestions for people in those kind of situations? You know, I like something I heard Sean Korn say recently on a podcast I was listening to. And she said that, you know, when that she still gets triggered, you know, um, with with what somebody may do, but she tries to, she didn't use this word, but this is how I interpret it. It's like, she tries to keep her container empty enough that when something happens that she doesn't have to react in that moment, that she can still maintain a sense of calm and balance, but that she has an awareness that, Oh, I'm being negatively impacted by this, or I do find this irritating or frustrating or hurtful or whatever it may be. And I need to go home and process the shit out of that later. So I guess that this is a point where it's important to be proactive and not reactive, which most humans suck at myself included. Um, And so this is another thing where it's like, when you don't feel like you need the work, do the work because you're creating space to maybe be able to have that, Um, window of tolerability when something comes up and you can't quite deal with it. I like to think of it as like using a psychological credit card. So if somebody came to me and they said, Hey, uh, you know, I need new tires on the car and I don't have any money and I don't get paid for two weeks. Um, but it's snowing outside and I don't feel it's safe to be driving my kids around. Should I use a credit card to make the purchase of these tires? Answer would be absolutely. That's a wonderful tool. But if you never made a payment on that purchase, now you're going to be in some trouble down the road. Now you got 30 days, which is a nice grace window to work, to, to think about now, how am I going to find the money to pay this debt that I just took on? I don't think that that's problematic. And similarly in the psychological world, I, I, I encourage people to think of it that way that, you know, there are times where we cannot process the, the event that just occurred. And but we shouldn't ignore that we need to process it. So most of us have the ability to, to not, um, to maybe not have to re- be reactive in the moment, but then we maybe leave it and then we go distract ourselves from this and we just think that it's gone. Yeah. Like I, we just didn't open the mail and see that, Oh yeah, I just made that purchase. Yeah. It's so I think that I yeah. a lot like, let it go. Yeah. Oh, just let it go. Well, that's, that's uh, just don't, just don't open the mail. You know, just yeah. don't pay the bill. Uh, <laughs> I just don't know that that's a good long-term strategy. Yeah. So. And, and to follow on your analogy, I mean, something that's been really helpful for me in dealing with my triggers as they come up in the moment is having a, a practice which really puts me in touch with my, my experience, you know, physically, oh, yeah. emotionally, and mentally. That to me is like to follow your analogy of the credit card. That's more like, uh, a psychosomatic debit card where mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm learning how to be more aware of my experience so that when I'm triggered in the moment, I can recognize it. I can recognize mm-hmm. what's happening in me and I can then manage it. And yeah. so even having, uh, 
breathing practices where I learn how to regulate myself, uh-huh. then I can call on that in those moments. I can bring myself back into my container, back into my mm-hmm. center and be more uh, flexible in my ability to respond rather than just being on autopilot and just yeah. re- reacting because my container is so full in the moment that there's no room to observe. Yeah. Right? Well, something that just came up for me when I was listening to you talk, and I think that what's really important is to like, there's a lot of practices that, that have benefit or utility in both ends of the uh, emotional spectrum. And so like even a meditative or a yogic practice, like for example, a lot of times people use that practice just to explore one end of the emotional continuum. And that is finding a place of calm and resolve. And my encouragement would be once you find yourself getting activated sufficiently enough times, or you feel like that container is filling up, then maybe turn that practice around intentionally when you're going into a meditative practice or maybe, um, and now instead of working towards, you know, calming these sensations, maybe we're working towards bringing them up. Maybe we're working towards inviting them in. That's not a fun and enjoyable process. I would rather use my meditation for the bliss trip, you know, if, 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 I mean, I'd rather use it to find a feel good state, but that's not always the case in the world. And so I, I think a lot of times, one of the things that we could do is we could use our meditative, our yogic practice to go, with this practice, what I want to do is find where I've been holding my anger, find where I've been holding my sadness. I want to find where I might have held that interaction that I had with so-and-so that I knew that I didn't feel good leaving that conversation. I'm going to use this practice to open my body up for maybe the pain, the anger, the fear, the resentment, whatever might be living in there so that I can express the those in this environment and I can feel some of that yuck in a way that will clean that system out and then not be damaging to the, you know, to other people that are around me. So I think a good idea too is to not just use um, some of these practices to avoid the uncomfortable feelings, but to use these practices to move towards the uncomfortable feelings when we're in a safe space to do that, whether that's in a therapist's office, whether that's in the home by ourselves. For example, one of the things that I just recently did that I felt like I had a lot of success with um, was that I was having this kind of reoccurring dream and this feeling when I was falling asleep that resonated with some of the anger that I might might have been holding. And so a few weeks ago, what I did is I just laid down as if I was in the therapist's office and I thought, I wonder if I can feel any of those things. I wonder, now that I have some tools and some skills that if it comes up, I know how to feel into that without hurting my body or hurting the room. I feel like there's something in my nervous system that could benefit from being discharged, but going into that practice, laying down with that intention, if I have some, you know, sensations that come up or a scream that wants to come out, which ended up happening in that setting, it was wonderful. And it was hugely beneficial. It doesn't have the same depth as when I'm working with somebody one-on-one, but I tell you what, it avoided me having to go back or finding somebody immediately to do that. So I was actually surprised at the level that I could get to on my own. But I think that was also predicated by the fact that I learned that in the context of working with somebody mm-hmm. so that I could have that experience and not be frightened by it myself. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm just thinking about how, like what you just described there, where you're able to conjure up some of that anger mm-hmm. uh, and maybe it wasn't like the fullest expression that you might have had working with the therapist or something, mm-hmm. 
but it was almost like a, a microdose of anger therapy. I love it, man. Yeah, and it was still pretty big, but yeah, it wasn't as big. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to look at it, like a microdose. Yeah. Yeah, and like just uh, riffing off what you're talking about, like, is there a way that we can bring these other kind of experiences into our practice other than just shooting for peace and calm and bliss? I think that's one of the, the benefits of a particular kind of yoga practice where you're in positions that are causing some stress. Yeah. And again, it's like a, it's a microdose of stress. And mm-hmm. to be able to be with that, Mm-hmm. And to self-regulate, to observe what's going on, what's mm-hmm. happening in your body as you start to feel like, what is my stress response? Mm-hmm. And to be with that, it's like, it's like microdosing those experiences that you're going to run into in your everyday life. Uh, it gives you like, it's a word that's being thrown around a lot these days, but uh, resilience. Uh-huh. And resilience is really like, I love the description I got from Gabor Mate about it's like the analogy of a rubber ball and Mm -hmm. when a rubber ball is fresh and new if you squish the rubber ball it bounces back to its original shape and Mm -hmm. that's resilience that ability to bounce back into a state of equanimity or flow which is Mm -hmm. i believe Mm -hmm. our natural state and if the the ball is uh not resilient you're going to squish it down and it's going to stay squished Mm -hmm. Right. Or maybe it's so rigid that you can't even squish it anymore. And just thinking about that, like rigidity or stuckness. And I think that really feels like what can happen to us as we get stuck in a certain pattern or way of relating. And we're not able to just bounce back into the flow. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's because we've demonized certain emotional experiences or we've demonized certain sensations. We've said, well, these ones are good and those are okay to allow in. And then these ones are bad. And I think when we've got into that, wherever that, that idea started really got us into some trouble because then when discomfort comes up, we think that it's bad. And so we resist that experience. And that's what a lot of that is, is that instead of in the, to borrow something else that you know, Gabor, Gabor Mate even talks about, obviously, in his, I mean, it's the title of his, of his uh, approach, which is that compassionate curiosity. And I think that that's something that's important for everybody to develop is that, okay, so I've got this tension, or I've got this really uncomfortable feeling coming up. And rather than to immediately identify that with, this is uncomfortable, and therefore it's bad, to have a curiosity, this is really uncomfortable. And I, yes, I don't like it and I don't have to like it, but I wonder if there's any utility here. I wonder what this is about. I wonder what this could maybe even teach me Mm -hmm. so that we're not shutting it down and we're not just casting these things off to into the useless camp. Um, And that's another, that's a mindset obviously that we could take into that. Um, But, but to, to see that I think as a first step is just to understand that, Discomfort and um, uh, pain is not necessarily a bad thing because I think that that's when we've got that association, then we want to run from it um, rather than maybe this is here for a reason and I can move towards it and have this experience and maybe this experience isn't bad, even though it feels bad. There's a difference between feel bad and bad. Um, And so I'm thinking about that as as you're talking about that is that uh, when we're in a practice, 
we should be working towards allowing the full spectrum of emotional experience mm -hmm. and sensation and not trying to cherry pick and select which ones are good and which ones aren't good. Yeah, it's fine to feel good and we should all be working towards that. And I find that the, the, the odd, the, the thing that most people are missing is, is you're, what I believe to be true is you're going to actually experience more of the positive emotions and sensations by your ability and your capacity to allow in the ones that are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going into a practice to not have it limited to just, uh, I only want to feel good after this practice. Yeah. Maybe I need to feel lost and curious after this practice. Yeah, for sure. Otherwise we run into, you know, what John Wellwood called spiritual bypassing. Mm -hmm. That's it. Where we're just pushing aside uncomfortable experience and, and shooting for peace and bliss only and only yeah. allowing that it's going to come back to bite us in the ass at some point. Yeah. Well, and then we don't, what we don't realize is we're limiting our capacity for joy and bliss. I believe, mm. I believe our capacity for joy and bliss is, is, is couched in, in, in the dark side. Um, mm. Can you uh, talk about that a little more? What do you mean by that? Well, so it's like a, um, I mean, I think that's how we come to know things in this human experience is by contrast. Mm. And so, um, uh, it, it just seems that we can't really know, um, the joy without the pain. It's almost like, and I see people do this with relationships as well. Um, let me see if this makes sense. This is what also I had two thoughts popped into my head at the same time, which often happens. Um, that something that's come to me in my work that seems like a truism is that people can never have more than they can handle losing. And what will happen is people will start self-sabotaging and pushing away the things that are really good in their life, which they intuitively or maybe unconsciously know that they're going to have to say goodbye to one day. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of this work and talk and idea around non-attachment, for example. Yeah. Um, right. And I think that that's a way of trying to avoid pain yeah. on some level, this fancy way of, oh, well, then nothing is important to me and therefore I don't have to, feel the pain of saying goodbye when it's time. We are, here's one thing I can say as a hundred percent, we're going to lose everything that's of value to us in this lifetime. Whether we transcend to something else or not, and whether your beliefs are about that. Okay. I think most people would agree that even if we move on to another incarnation, that this incarnation is going to come to an end. And even if we came back in this incarnation, this personal experience that we're having right now, this lifetime, there will be an end to it. Okay. Whether there's something else or not, there's going to be an end. And what's going to hurt worse, losing something that's of high value to you or something that's going to be of low value to you. Right. So mm -hmm. sometimes I think people start to distance even in relationship or they start to emotionally shut down in a relationship as a part of a, a way of avoiding the pain that's going to come at the end of it. So if you have a relationship, for example, that over a 50 year period grows in intimacy, grows in depth, grows in um, safety, grows in compassion, man, that's going to rattle you at the end. That's going to hurt much worse than if you have somebody that you barely know that you just coexisted with over 50 years. Yeah. So I think what happens is, is that um, we start to, shut things down 
as a way of pro protecting ourselves against the loss that's going to come and the pain that's going to come with that. So if we want to have great things and great, deep, you know, meaningful experiences, we have to be able to say goodbye to those experiences and feel the pain that's going to occur on that back end. So the way that I see it in this lifetime, and even if I think about it from a lens of grief and loss, life gives us all kinds of losses to practice before the big one anyway. You know, the loss of childhood, the loss of certain relationships, the loss of pets, for example. Um, these are opportunities to practice keeping the heart open and feeling pain so that we can continue to evolve and experience closeness and intimacy in our life. So uh, our ability to experience intimacy is going to be hinged upon our ability to experience pain and our ability to survive pain. Yeah, man, what you're saying really resonates with me. Um, so one of our dogs passed away last year, mm -hmm. little sweetie. And uh, last few years of her life, I really started to reckon with the pain that I knew was coming. And I thought a lot about this idea that you hear in spiritual circles quite a bit, that uh, life is suffering and the way to avoid suffering is non-attachment. Yep. And what I came to for myself was recognizing how attached I was to this little loving, wonderful animal mm -hmm. and how much that was going to cause me pain down the road when she was yeah. gone, when I lost her. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like a deal that I made with myself that the joy that I get from that level of attachment and intimacy mm -hmm. I'm, I'm willing to deal with the pain that's going to come. When yeah. I'm yeah. And uh, so that was like what you're talking about, I think is in order to feel the, the, the heights of joy that are possible yeah. in our life, there has to be a willingness to experience the depths of pain and grief to grief. Yeah. And we can't have the heights of joy without attachment. I don't believe that we can. And there's a lot of people that would argue with that. And I'm not here to say, hey, you got to choose my way of seeing it. But that's, that's the way that I see it. I, I don't see it as attachment. I mean, when we identify with like, this car is me, yeah. that's, that's a different kind of thing. So I'm not talking about that. <laughs> uh, right. but, you know, just to provide, you know, some people get into that that level of craziness. Um, but this I'm talking about leaving your heart open and leaving your heart, allowing your heart to be touched by something that is impermanent. Yeah. You have to be, you have to be able to say goodbye to that when it's time, which means feel the pain that's underneath that. Yeah. Intimately and, over interwoven. And you know, when you've experienced that level of attachment, intimacy with a being, mm -hmm. Uh, I found that it's not actually impermanent because even now that she's gone, when I'm reminded of her, like when a photo comes up on my phone, you know, yeah. one of those reminders from social media, remember this day two years ago. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I was like, trying to oh, forget it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It brings up <laughs> the pain, but it also brings up the feeling of joy. Absolutely. Uh, and that's alive. And, and mm -hmm. I, 
you know, my wife was uh, having an experience the other day where she was remembering Sweetie and uh, she was, oh, God, I don't know if this is ever going to go away. And I said, I hope not, because yes. when that comes up, she's still with you. And mm -hmm. that love and affection and everything is still alive in you. So, God, mm -hmm. I, hope, I hope for myself that that never goes away. Mm-hmm. Because I can, I can deal with the grief, you know. Because, Absolutely. Because it also allows for the joy. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the crazy things that are happening in our society today, too. Like, even when you've got, like, these people that are working towards downloading consciousness and whatever. It's like all this, uh, either we learn to work with loss and accept loss and the pain that inevitably comes from losing things that are important and of value to us. Or we have to work on avoiding loss. So including loss of life. And you've got these, you know, like a Dmitry Itzkoff, you know, who's this Russian billionaire who's trying to, you know, has this 2045 initiative where we can download consciousness. And, you know, you've got people like, you know, Kurzweil, who, if my memory is correct, like he's got his dad cryogenically frozen. You know, the guy's brilliant. But it's like that either you learn the technique of grief or you go about life trying to prevent loss and not experiencing loss. That sounds like a recipe for a lot of anxiety to me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're consumed by fear because you don't know, you don't have the skill and the tool to see grief through to the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that we're missing here. And that involves feeling pain. You're not grieving if you're not feeling pain and an overwhelming pain, a pain that it feels like it's way bigger than you. Um, and so either as a culture, we start to learn how to grieve again, or we're going to continue to try to practice non-attachment and avoid loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just reminded of conversations I've had with Steven Jenkinson. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've listened to those podcasts that I've done with him. Yeah. So, I mean, he worked in palliative care for many years and in, in Canada, at least he's kind of known as the death guy because he talks mm -hmm. about. Uh, death quite a bit and what it means to, as he puts it, die wise. Yeah. And so he talks about in our culture, how we avoid the, the pain of dying. And, you know, I don't want to misrepresent what he says because his ideas about this are so complex and he's so uh, able to articulate them very well. But basically, the way I understand what he's saying is that there's a, we almost have an obligation to experience uh, pain and loss. Like, what I hear from him sometimes is like, who are you to deny yeah. the people around you, to deny life, this experience of, of dying and really experiencing grief and loss? Yeah. And I think there's something in that about finding meaning in life. Absolutely. And unless we experience the depths of pain and loss that we are going to feel a lack of meaning. And, and that's a, another conversation that's happening right now is what people are calling the meaning crisis. Um, yeah. And I hear this from clients is uh, they don't feel like there's much meaning to their life. There's no sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And what if our, what if our purpose was to go through it all? And to, to really allow for it all and to not deny ourselves a, a uh, meaningful death. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. 
where that goes. But well, well, in, in the thought that I had, even as you were talking about that, is you know, why would somebody have a difficulty finding a meaning and a purpose? I mean, there's, a, I mean, that's such a huge conversation. There's no way I could tackle that right now. But again, based on what we're talking about, though, let's say that you found something really meaningful. Let's say you get what you want. You find something absolutely meaningful. And let's say it has to do with something um, that requires your physical ability to do it. Let's, you know, let's say it's playing an instrument. If you continue to go through this life, there may be a time where that physical ability is compromised and you can no longer do that. You can no longer express your art in that way. There's the loss. So there's a lot of losses and deaths that happen before the big death. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was speaking to earlier. And so I think a lot of times people might, you know, be careful what you wish for. Because if you find your meaning and you don't have the capacity to be able to say goodbye to that meaning, if it should ever happen, then uh, you're going to be left in a, in a world of overwhelm that you can't navigate out of. And so some of the things that, again, that we're wanting might be compromised by the fact that we cannot and we're getting less and less capable and able of dealing with the painful side of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kind of I feel like this is circling us back around to where we began in uh, offering suggestions for how people could deal with anger and mm-hmm looking at what, what might be beneath the anger or behind it. Um, and, you know, this came up with a client where he, he would be triggered in certain situations and we were getting to what the belief was behind that trigger, uh-huh. what, he, what he made, what the person said mean about him. And we got to some childhood experience where he uh-huh. felt um, unworthy, not important, that led to him feeling quite lonely and isolated. So there's a lot of sadness there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would always go to anger. Uh, (laughs) And and what I was thinking about after the session actually was, you know, a question that didn't come up in our session, but one that, you know, I'll ask him next time is whether he's actually grieved his childhood. Yeah. uh, The childhood that he never had or the things that he never got from his caregivers in his childhood, whether he's actually gone through that grieving process. Mm -hmm. And that I know for myself, anger, self-righteousness, blaming were ways that I avoided grieving my own childhood. Absolutely. Yep. You got it. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) I mean, I believe you have it. Let's, let's say it that way. I can't speak, you know, but, but this is, well, but, this is like yeah. what we're talking about, right? Like, um, yeah. experiencing the full spectrum of life. Yeah. Uh, and maybe anger, you know, anger does serve a function in our life. It uh-huh. helps us to create boundaries and uh-huh. to protect ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, but often we're protecting our psychology, our psychology or our vulnerability or, or our fear or our sadness. We're protecting ourselves from feeling those things. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, adaptive at some point in our life where mm-hmm. we couldn't go into the depths of, of grief and sadness yeah. And, yeah. and fear and all that. Cause it was just too overwhelming. And so we learned how, uh, how to push things away. Yeah. With anger or yeah. self righteousness. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I'm just like, as I go into this, uh, something that you're talking about earlier. Uh, so I'm thinking about like, we were talking about avoiding uh, anger or uncomfortable feelings, but there's also another part of the spectrum, right? Where people can go into anger and get consumed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems to me like it's almost maybe the opposite of avoidance is it's also problematic to, to uh, be overly consumed is only or possessed by the anger. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and that's what, you know, in the beginning, what I meant when I was saying to always see it as a doorway and not as the, you know, as the, as at the end of the road. So if you're not getting to anything else underneath the anger, um, then you're avoiding something, meaning that it's fine to work with and experience the anger, emotional, you know, part of that continuum. But if it's not leading you to a primary emotion underneath that of sadness, loss, fear, rejection, abandonment, whatever, you know, those types of things, then it's incomplete um, as far as I, I'm concerned. So again, if it's look, if anger work is looked at as a doorway, um, then I think that's a, a healthier approach. If it's looked at as a destination, um, then there's likely going to be some things that are missing and it likely will not resolve, meaning that your anger is going to be your dominant psychological state. Right. And I guess maybe where I'm, I'm trying to go with that and some threads were coming together for me as you're speaking is anger as a way to avoid the other feelings. The other so, feelings, yeah. Like anger itself is like a coping mechanism. A hundred percent and a defense mechanism. Yeah. Mm. So it's appropriate and it's a part of the experience, but it's not the experience in and of itself, meaning it's not an entire experience. Um, it doesn't coexist without those other things. And so a lot, you know, and to think about it, a lot of times when we're angry, we're very mobilized. But if we go deep into grief, we're immobilized. Mm-hmm. We collapse in that state of deep sorrow. And so that's a, that level of vulnerability puts us at higher risk than if we're angry and we're charged up. Mm-hmm. So if we look at it just in terms of parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system states, right? You're much more vulnerable for a, you know, physically vulnerable in the, is it the sympathetic response? The shutdown response. Yeah. I always mix these up. Um, parasympathetic and, and is more uh, is going to rest and digest. Yeah. No, sympathetic. Well, I have it the opposite. Active. Yeah, I always yeah. get it opposite. Okay. So just know in the hot or cold side of our nervous system states, one is highly activated, one is shut down. Nobody needs to know all these scientific terms anyway. Um, we've got two sides of this. We've got a hot side and a cold side. And the anger lives in that hot side. But in that side, we have mobility. So we're physically less um, threatened in that state. But grief lives in that shutdown state, that sadness, that vulnerability, that loss of childhood that you were talking about earlier. That, led, that level of process typically happens when we're in, a, in, in that more collapsed side of the, of the nervous system state. So we're more vulnerable to attack. We're more vulnerable to something bad happening. So we feel less, quote unquote, in control. Whereas when we're in the anger side of the continuum, we feel more in control and people don't usually like to give that up. That's the last thing they want to give up is their um, sense of control. Mm-hmm. And so grieving requires a sense of surrender that has a different quality of vulnerability to it. There's not a lot of vulnerability necessarily in anger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, yeah totally. And just to give some more nuance to uh, our understanding of the nervous system in these different states. So I think um, for people who are listening, if you want to understand more about this, uh, Stephen Porges has done some great work. Yeah, the polyvagal. Polyvagal theory, where he actually identifies, I believe, uh, four states. So when we're in the fight mode, we're highly activated. It's very mobile. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and fight and flight, there's a impulse to act, yeah. to, to move. Um, but there's also, uh, it's not just hot or cold, but uh, we could be in um, a, a state where we're immobilized, but still yeah. very activated. Yeah. So we're kind of frozen in fear. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, on the, on the depth of the spectrum is the complete shutdown state, which mimics a feigned death response that uh -huh. you see in an animal like a, yep. a bird or a possum. And I have seen that in humans. Uh, the first time I saw it, I thought the person actually died. I didn't know about this theory. and Nobody in grad school told me about it. Um, and so, yeah, so that can happen. The same exact thing can, can happen in humans. I've only yeah. seen that happen a couple of times. One time, but the first time it happened, I, I actually thought the dude had died. Yeah, it can be very frightening. I mean, it's happened to a friend of ours when she was mm. uh, visiting. She Something happened to her on the, on the way over that uh, triggered a wow. traumatic response. And she came over and basically collapsed and had yep. to run over and grab her before she fell out of the chair. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of able to recognize what's going on there. So yep. it didn't worry so much. I just got her to a safe prone position and let her system work it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think uh, being able to process that with her afterwards is, is helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but I was interrupted. You were talking about the shutdown and that this, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to say that there, yeah, yeah. there's more than just like the on or off that it, yeah. it's more nuanced. And Stephen Porges has really done a lot of work around that and helping us to better understand these different states. And I, I think just like understanding them helps us to recognize in ourselves when it's a nervous system response and to uh, be more accepting of it and understand that uh, it's temporary. And mm -hmm. if we allow it, um, our nervous system will come back into a state of equilibrium. Uh, yep. Yeah. Like what you're if we don't mess say. with it and that's yeah. just what happens if, if we, we don't we want, interrupt it if we right? don't interrupt it and there's such a strong tendency for both the person watching it and the person going through it to try to interrupt it and yeah. that's the practice as far as i'm concerned is working towards understanding that the nervous system is highly evolved and it knows what it's doing unfortunately we have a big cortex which allows us to get in the way mm -hmm. of that process and so a lot of the work in the practice is surrendering to the body and not letting the mind run the show and think it knows best. The nervous system has uh, an intelligence that is, I think, a little bit deeper and more nuanced than what our cortical regions of our brain have. It's a wonderful thing, but that thing can get in the way of that process so much of the time. Yeah, um, totally. And uh, so just circle back to, you're talking about grief and how grief is more of a, a collapse or a shutdown and how we're very uh, vulnerable in that state. Mm -hmm. I just think about the way that traditionally how people grieve. Often, um, maybe it was the individual going off to be alone for a few days yeah. where they'd yeah. be in a, in a safe space away from the community. Uh, 
able to let themselves really just let go into that grieving process um, or where communities actually get together and support each other and create a safe container for grief, grief to be fully expressed. Mm-hmm. And I think we've like lost that to I, I would agree. Yeah. And in between those two, I have a bias. I lean towards that. I, I, and and I, I agree with Francis Weller, who wrote a wonderful book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, I, which um, was one of the books that I read when it first came out. And I thought, great, now I don't have to ever write a book because he already did it. I'm, I fall mm. into that trap a lot. <laughs> um, so I really uh, like his perspective on it. But he says that, um, or his position would be is it's, to fully grieve is too big to it's too big of a task to handle on by oneself. My experience mirrors that. Um, I would say that it's uh, it's too big to, to for one person to hold at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's not to say that we don't do some of our grieving alone because it is a process, not an event as well. Mm-hmm. So some of that process, so I'm not saying don't do any of it by yourself. You're going to do some of it by yourself and that's okay. What I'm saying is I think without that communal support, and that could be uh, just one more person, just one more person who's atu- highly attuned, not afraid, um, and is willing to swim in those waters with you. Uh, we don't need 20, but we need at least one other person. If there's a bigger, larger group who can all do that, wonderful benefit, but that we ha- we may not have touch the very bottom depths of grief by ourselves. I don't know that we can touch the very bottom of it by ourselves. I think that the, the having somebody else be with us in that process is, 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 is paramount. I think it's absolutely necessary if we're going to get to the most deepest level of resolve that's possible. What do you think it is about uh, going through a grieving process with another or with a group? Is it the safety is it the being seen? I think it's uh, both of those things. Absolutely. And when you talked about, when you just mentioned the word safety, I think a lot of people just think of that in terms of physical, mm-hmm. um, you know, are you physically safe? But the big piece of safety is, are you psychologically safe? So like what you were talking about, I think even before we started recording, when you were talking about um, some of your practice sessions and the person like leaving the, you know, not tracking with you, emotionally and where you were going or maybe taking you or, or, or trying to divert your attention into another direction. They had an agenda that they wanted you to walk. Yeah. Right. And a lot of beginning therapists have that and they want to be useful and helpful. And they think this is what you should do. And so they'll start to push you down that road versus let me just understand and hear where you're coming from. Um, that leaves a person feeling rejected and alone. And so let's say that you're going through a really heavy grieving process and that individual starts to go, here's what I think you should do. Or have you thought about this? They just psychologically abandon you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't look like anything behaviorally. It doesn't look like any wound happened. But that feeling when you're that raw and you're that open, what that gets interpreted as is that I'm not comfortable with your material. So I'm going to go ahead and leave or I'm going to say that you're doing it wrong and you should be over here. That leaves us feeling way more isolated. So it's the feeling that we're left with and something that looks fairly benign behaviorally can leave somebody in a really deserted place psychologically. So how do we help somebody through their grieving process? And I think this is a cornerstone of just any good therapy. 
it's understanding. If you do nothing else, see if you can't just understand what that person is going through and mirror that back to them. You know, I see this in you right now. I'm sensing it feels like this. Am I close? You know, as I watch this process with you, it feels like the whole, you know, you know, and, and you can use metaphor, you can use whatever, but you're trying to see if you can't articulate that experience back to that person. This must feel like this will never end right now. It feels like there's no way that this could be survivable. Mm. Is that the place you're in? That's the kind of tracking that we need to do. That's the kind of support we need to be offering. It really should be, we should not seek solution. We should understand the nervous system that's been involved over 275 million years probably already has a better solution than the cortex, which has only been around about 200,000 years, at least in our current form. It's, much, it's, it's, not, uh, it's a much newer system. Maybe there's a wisdom in our nervous system in this psychological processing that knows better than any of the thoughts that we can come up with anyway. But what we can do is sit there with somebody and help guide them in that experience, meaning we, not, we don't have a problem to solve. Yeah. We just have an understanding to try to get or to try to grasp. And then that way a person feels seen, as you just mentioned, and feels heard and understood. And they don't feel alone entirely. They feel like somebody gets this with me. There's something about that feeling of being gotten, that feeling of being understood that automatically makes people light up. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? And, and there's something healing in that. And so when somebody's going through their grieving, it's not about reminding them of all the good times they had. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not about that. It's by letting your heart break and go, I see this and it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Because if someone's doing that, like saying, well, just think of all the good things you have and the people that are left Worst here. Do. Mm -hmm. Well, what it's probably, what it's telling me is that that person is uncomfortable with your grief mm -hmm. and um, they're trying to like steer you away from it due to their that's own discomfort. Exactly. And what that's telling me, I think like, and what you mentioned uh, in, in the session I had where I felt like there was a real disconnect that happened because the person I was working with had their own agenda. Uh -huh. um, I think my nervous system felt that. And mm -hmm. it took me a while to actually process that and try to like understand what happened there. Like, mm -hmm. why did I feel that break? And I, f I think it's about that nervous system attunement. And so somatically being with the person less so than our ideas about what's going on. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't yeah. When th once the analytical part, goes up um we're probably on the wrong track we should always be going it's it's all sensory based at that point i mean a yeah. lot of it's sensory and that's where that compassionate curiosity idea that gabor espouses really comes in handy that should be everybody's focus is not can i fix this person's pain not can i solve this person's pain some of these things aren't solvable if somebody close to somebody dies they're not coming back yeah. um you know and so, so sadness is the most appropriate natural response yeah. So, and it will wow. resolve if it's given space to be as big as it naturally is. So that's our work is to find the safety, whether alone at times or whether with people who are going, Hey man, um, I'll be with you. And I trust that this will pass. I trust that your body knows how to get rid of this. Um, especially if I have some companionship and I'll just make sure that you're okay. And if you need anything, I'll, I'll get it for you. If you need a blanket, I'll get the blanket for you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so a part of this, like the personal piece of this for me is learning how to cultivate that sense of safety in your own body, mm -hmm. which is 
being attuned to you know what is actually going on in your body as much as you can through all the kind of emotional ups and downs like yeah. getting really familiar with the territory of your inner experience and to do what Bessel van der Kolk calls befriending the body. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that personally, we're going to be able to create a safe space for other people. That's exactly it. Because the discomfort that we're feeling, we're not going to try to, um, yeah, take people out of you know, what we're feeling as discomfort and divert them away uh -huh. from that. We're going to be able to be with our own discomfort because we recognize it. We know it's not going to kill us. Uh -huh. Um, and just really be there for people. And maybe that doesn't even mean saying anything. <laughs> I've always said that the more that we say, the probably the less helpful that we're providing. Yeah. In that space. <laughs> and this is where a lot of th things like touch can be very important if it's appropriate. Even in the therapeutic realm, whether it's holding somebody's hand, for example, or whether that's, uh, you know, just something that feels like physical contact. We know, for example, that babies who are not touched uh, can die from that experience. Yeah. The touch is extremely important. And uh, Basil, in one of the continuing edu education courses I did with, with him recently, um, talked about touch. I believe it was him. Touch that uh, communicates five times more information than just words do anyway. But that so, touch is only going to communicate uh, a helping kind of information if that's it. You're, you're, if you're in that state, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. So that's absolutely it. And that's why we have to do the practices you're speaking to anyway. Um, but if we get to that place, and assuming we could, um, we can handle that territory and not try to pull them out of it. Then that senses that I'm, I'm so if we're genuinely there and we offer the hand, then they'll genuinely feel that. And that information will get transmitted more than any of the words that we could provide. Now, if you are uncomfortable and you are trying to get the hell out of this, or you find yourself even coming up with looking for in your head solutions for this individual, then yes, then don't even offer the touch at that point yeah, uh, because it's gonna, likely going to be rejecting. Well, and you're going to transmit your own dysregulation. Like yes. I, I've noticed uh, with some people who are having trouble internally, they're very uncomfortable or anxious internally. If I'm going through uh, a grieving process or just feeling sad or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes they'll reach out and maybe rub your back as a way to almost self-soothe themselves. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can feel, you can feel what's that going on. In yep. them. And it's like, you know, the shoulders come up and you kind of shrug it off. Like, Oh, just leave me Not alone. Not like a touch that says go deeper. I've got it. I've got you. Like yeah. I'm here. I'm stable. I'm in Great my center. Distinction. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's kind of responsive. I've seen a million times, you know, I've felt it myself that kind of like shrugging off someone's like quote unquote comfort and touch, which may be their intention, but I think they're trying to actually comfort themselves and we're picking up on their dysregulation or their yeah. or we're picking up on, see, the, the, this is what I mean by rejection. So that right there is rejection yeah. that that person may not recognize, but that's what you're feeling. Cause what you're feeling is a person's desire to shut your emotional difficulties down. Mm -hmm. Right. So their attempt to self-soothe you, which may be an attempt to self-soothe themselves. Absolutely correct. What they're saying is, is don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's what your nervous system is hearing. Yeah. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's what your nervous system is reading. Yeah. This isn't okay. This isn't okay. This isn't okay. So that's what I mean by that rejection. So all your, so that person thinks that they're soothing you or helping you and they're rejecting you. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, man. Well, <laughs> when we started this call, you know, this, where the hell are we, Brian? <laughs> this is just like, um, you know, the way I thought about it before we got on the call, like this morning where we both are, uh, I was singing like tea with a psychotherapist, like tea with Sean uh-huh. and like, let's see what comes up and, yeah. and where we go with this. And I think we've covered a lot. And I love yeah. where we've gotten now. I wonder if there's a way to sum up uh, some of the key points that we touched okay. on here on how to, to deal with uncomfortable emotions. And we'll include anger yeah. in that, mm-hmm. how, how to deal with that and how to support others. Maybe there's just some bullet points we can leave people with some things to, uh, for them to consider and, and look into a little deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's. Oh, I mean, we can both do this together. Hopefully, um, you know, the first thing that popped into my head and from a from a conceptual standpoint um, would be to recategorize painful emotions or or bad feelings as not being bad, uh, as maybe being some of the most helpful allies that we have, because they enhance our capacity to have. Uh, joy and relationship in life that we are ultimately going to lose so that our practice in feeling bad is intimately tied to our capacity to feel good mm-hmm. and our capacity to feel connection. If we can't tolerate the possibility for loss in our life, then we will self-sabotage and we will, um, uh, uh, yeah, we, we will limit our capacity for, for some of the really beautiful things that this life can offer in relationship with ourselves and with others. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really trying to, here's what I'm doing, man. Mm -hmm. Here's my, here's what I believe my job is, you know, in this life, for example, and it's the worst ever. So like, I've always said that we all have something that we're trying to sell, especially in a capitalistic society. Some people are selling their programming skills to maybe a company. They may not have a job of sales type, you know, salesperson on their business card, but we're selling our gifts or our capacities, our abilities. Um, And then, you know, you're selling your yoga knowledge, you're selling, you know, your time, you know, that kind of stuff when you're with somebody. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that may be an uncomfortable language to put it in, but what I'm trying to sell to people, I think my, my, the thing that I was given to sell the world is uh, suffering. That is like the worst thing that you could ever, (laughs) that you could ever sell to somebody like, yeah, you know, um, I would have liked to, you know, be a musician or, you know, maybe follow that, that path a little bit further. So, because when I go to concerts, a lot of people have smiles on their face, but when people come to see me, uh, I'm selling pain and suffering to them with the, with the, with the idea that that's actually how you experience, experience the most joy. But that's what it feels like that I'm always doing is I'm trying to sell the benefits of suffering. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that, man. <laughs> it's not working out too well, but in a culture where people are selling, uh, relief from suffering or, I know, you I know, know, yeah, the, the antidote to suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the antidote is the suffering. Yeah. Mm. Oddly enough. So that's my summary kind of takeaway is that just to try to even understand that bad feelings aren't bad. Yeah. I, I just feel like maybe like for me anyway, I'll speak for myself, mm-hmm. but I want to make a distinction between pain and suffering. Oh, and Okay. Suffering, I associate with, to put it simply, wanting things to be different than they are. 
Mm-hmm. So there's like uh, resistance, I like this. Mm-hmm. resistance and conflict mm-hmm. that I associate with suffering. Pain is pain. Pain is what is unavoidable in our life. Physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, completely unavoidable. The pain of loss, all of that, inevitable. Mm-hmm. But I think it's when we suffer only when we don't accept and when we really wish things were different than they actually are. It's like what Byron Katie says, we're arguing with God. We're arguing with reality. That's a great point. So I just wanted to make that distinction. I like it. One of the teachings in yoga from Patanjali is that future suffering, or we might say suffering that is optional, Mm -hmm. is avoidable. You know, like unnecessary suffering is avoidable. It's maybe a clearer way to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so just like, I love the way that you sum that up. And uh, from, my, from my point of view, there are things that we can practice to help us to yeah. be with suffering. So mm-hmm. being more intimate with our experience yes. through our, our body and emotions, making a practice of that. And also utilizing tools that are available to us so that we're better able to be with painful experience. So breath work for me is the key. So learning how to Uh work with your breath, regulate your breath. It's the, it's the one way we have to engage with our nervous system that is under our control. It's like life gave us this beautiful gift of being able to interact with our nervous system Uh through the breath uh, so that to me has just been the most powerful tool. Yeah. Um, if any of the listeners haven't listened to your conversation, I think, did you only have one with Michael Mead? Yeah. Okay. This is what I'm thinking of too. And this will be the, uh, hopefully my final point is that maybe this practice. So there are a couple of things I noted when I was listening to you was, you know, that if we can work towards trusting the body's wisdom, Mm-hmm. That that nervous system that's been around for that long, maybe have maybe has a wisdom and there's a method to the madness, right? So if a, a shaking sensation wants to come up, to try to allow that to come up, right? If tears want to come up, try to allow that to come up. Here's something I see in my practice all the time: somebody will start crying and then they'll say, "I don't know why I'm crying." Yeah. And I'm like, "Who cares?" your body wants to cry just let it cry maybe you'll come up with it maybe you won't but the knowing is less important but the mind always wants to know why okay so that's something so just trusting the 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 body's innate wisdom but going back to that michael mead thing and i think in terms of practice and i like what you said about breath yoga meditation um you know what michael mead says that i like i like his language in your in in that episode that's why i encourage people to go back to it but um, we're now living in a time where we're very ascent focused so we're moving towards spirit. We're moving what he calls spirit. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, we're out of balance is we don't have enough practices or we don't have enough time working to move towards soul that we've lost contact with soul and soul as he described is kind of that earth and, and, and water element. And he said, when you mix earth and water, you get mud and you got to sometimes go through the mud, which I thought was brilliant. And maybe one of the things that we could do is start practicing, um, working towards balance. So maybe one meditative practice is let me work towards ascent. Let me work towards, a, you know, a, this idea of spirit. And maybe another, you know, time where I'm going to practice, I'm going to move towards decent and I'm going to move towards seeing how much of the discomfort that resides in my body I can work with or I can relax into. So yeah. to have a, a practice that's balanced with ascent and descent and to not demonize the descent. 
Totally. We, we need it all. And so I love what you just brought him back into the conversation, Michael Mead. Um, earth and water I associate with the body, mm-hmm. which to me is of the earth. You know, the mm-hmm. material, materiality of our body from is our body. made yep. from what we eat. Like we literally yep. are what we eat, which comes from mm-hmm. the earth. Water to me is all about emotion. Mm-hmm. And I love that he mixes those two Mm -hmm. uh, because that's the depth of our experience. That's the down and in that he talks about Mm -hmm. instead of the up and out, which is transcendence, Mm -hmm. which is maybe more air and fire qualities. Mm -hmm. We need both because we do need to be able to distance ourselves from heavy duty emotional experience. I think, you know, to know that we are not the anger, we are not the sadness, those are energies that are moving through our organism right now, and they're okay mm-hmm. as long as we allow them to move and to flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of how we become intimate with emotion is through intimacy with the body yeah. and with the breath, noticing yeah. our breath patterns and how they change as our psycho-emotional state changes. Mm-hmm. So for me, like the key to everything <laughs> is intimacy. So have a practice that cultivates more intimacy with your own embodiment and intimacy with other. So first it's got to happen within us. We have to become uh-huh. intimate with ourselves before we can have intimacy with other, like mm-hmm. authentic, true intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think this just then extends to being of support to others. Yeah in a way that allows them to have their experience and go through their process. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it's always like personal practice first, Mm -hmm. and then we're able to be there for others in the world. Yeah. I I, I love it, man. Okay, great. Well, man, thanks so much for this uh, tea time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've loved it, man. It's been, it's been great to get to know you. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm glad that people are finding benefit of it. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And for anybody listening, um, if there's anything else that you want us to explore in future conversations, this is something that I'd love to keep going. These, I would too, these conversations with Sean, because I just feel, uh, I feel such a resonance with you, uh, you know, I feel like we're coming from the same place, but we have yeah. different perspectives and, and I think different things to offer. And mm-hmm. there's something new that's created when we come together. And I think that's what people are responding to. Nice. I, I, I do as well. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, yeah, what, you know, and since the last time that I was on your show, um, my podcast is off the ground. Yes. And a lot of that's a lot of that's Q&A stuff because I get a lot of questions and I take my best shot at answering the questions that people send. Um, you know, I may not get to every single one of them, but I'll select a few periodically and answer those as I work towards, um, you know, finding more guest spots and things of that nature. But, uh, yeah, I, I, um, so that's up and running. The podcast is new directions for life. Yeah. If you, and I think you'll have to put the in front of it because it's the new directions for life. So that's on iTunes. So if you go the new directions for life podcast, you'll see and it. There'll be these when, arrows. Once you get, up. yeah. So you'll, you'll find him or, or search his name, Sean Dingle. Yep. yep. And so one of the things that happens when people start to review and subscribe to your podcast is it's easier to find. So mm-hmm. right now you have to plug in the, the whole name and get it right in order mm-hmm. for it to show up. So yeah. just to let listeners know that this is one of the ways that reviewing and subscribing to our podcast help is that it actually allows for more searchability. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, I, yeah. I appreciate you saying that because I'm new to this game. And so I don't even know a lot of the things that I <laughs> hopefully will end up knowing. And then, um, and then if you search my name though, which is, uh, which is also a good idea, you'll, you could find a couple of the other shows that I've been on like tangentially speaking. Yeah. Some of the other ones. So. Great. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we'll include links to your website and people and to the website. Go there to find out more. Oh, and another thing, last thing on that website, it just put up a video that describes that nervous systems, those nervous four nervous system states that you described. It's mm -hmm. about a half hour long clip. If you go to my therapeutic resources tab on my website, which is just ND, the number four, the word life.com, which I know you'll put a link to. Um, if you go to that therapeutic resources tab, you'll see this, um, I think it says trauma dynamics and ANS video, which stands for autonomic nervous system. If you right. want a better description than I can give, it's a really helpful tool. And I've had a lot of clients recently tell me that that helped them in their therapeutic process. And so that's an extension of a lot of what we were talking about today. Um, Great. Well. Thanks yeah. for that, man. And uh, thanks for the chat. And we'll talk Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. Love it. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face until next time we meet on the medicine path. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.